Heavenly Father, today I know that your presence is here because I can sense him. I can hear his voice speaking through people as he, uh, as he challenges us, as he moves us. And so God, as we open your words, may we hear your voice speaking clearly to us, moving us forward on your mission. In Jesus' name, amen. So last Sabbath was a high for me, and I know that many of you, as you kind of thought, man, that's why I have this broken heart. Uh, I know that's a, that's a good thing, uh, but I don't want to lose that high, and I want to focus on moving forward on how you can bring change. This last, this last week was powerful with the pastors as we sat around this, the, the group together in circles, and as we dreamed about moving our church forward, the question of how always comes to the surface. You know what you want to do, you know why you want to do it, but how do you do it? Uh, it's, we're moving 4,000 people in the same direction. I mean, you can barely move your family in the same direction. You had a whole church going in the same direction to be a unified, outward-focused, disciple-making machine. I mean, you know our church. Uh, it's so easy to get in these silos where you think, well, it's my ministry and what I want to do, or, or it's this over here, yet we're all on the same mission, on the same goal to move forward. And so we sat around thinking, how do we bring change? How do we change culture? How do we shift? How do we move forward? And, and there's, there's several things about change makers that rises to the surface. Change makers love to see progress. You love to take a, something from here and move it there. Change makers love to fix things that are broken. If it's not working, how can we change it and make it functional? Change makers do whatever it takes to bring change. And I hope that today, as we look at Nehemiah once more, that you'll be inspired, that you'll be challenged to be able to make that change and figure out the how that God's put on your life. Last week, if you remember, we looked at the story of Nehemiah just briefly. He took a quick gander at his life. You remember this cupbearer. Uh, he's with the king, and he, he goes and he visits Jerusalem. It's fallen down. It's in shambles. The people are disoriented. They're in a, in a mess as well, and his heart breaks for Jerusalem. In fact, he goes to the, the king, and he's there, and the king says, what's wrong with you? You're not sick, so this must be brokenheartedness that you have. And so Nehemiah understands his calling to do something powerful and, and rebuild Jerusalem, but he's struggling with the question of how. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, we have some points. In fact, I'll invite you to turn with me to the book of Nehemiah chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. There's a blue book in front of you, the Pew Bible, and you can follow along on page 342. You'll read the same words that I'm reading as we read about Nehemiah. And as you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit more context. When Nehemiah goes and he visits Jerusalem and he sees the, the rubble, he says, God has placed this on my heart to do something. He feels the urge, he's got to do it, but he doesn't know how. What will he do? I mean, he's a cupbearer. He's not a mason that knows how to build bricks. He's not a carpenter. He doesn't know wiring diagrams. He doesn't know plumbing, yet he's called to do this and he's got to figure out how. And from Nehemiah's story, today we have four points on figuring out the how to be a change maker. And the first one is there in, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. It's right in the middle of a prayer before Nehemiah goes in to see the king. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. If you're there, say amen. amen. Okay, here we go. Here's what it says. Nehemiah says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Point number one, Nehemiah did the very first thing. He prayed first. It's the very first step. 
He didn't go down to Jerusalem with his hammer and his saw and his screwdriver. He paused and he said, let's pray about this. Uh, what, what's the answer, Lord? What do you have? He didn't dream about it. He didn't talk about it. He didn't do anything about it. He just prayed. Why did he do that? Because this was a God-given burden. And if it was a God-given burden, then there's a God-given solution as well. In fact, I'd put it this way. We'll put it on the screen. Let's go. Keep going. What God originates, God orchestrates. If God originates it in your heart, then the how, the orchestration of it, will happen because he did it. If he placed it on your heart, he has a plan to make it happen too. If it came from him to change the world, then he also has a plan on doing it. The question is not how. God is the God of how. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He can do it all. If he broke your heart for something, then he'll help you figure out how to make change. Listen, if the how was so easy, it would already be done. God has the answer for it already, and Nehemiah, understanding that if God breaks his heart, he has the plan to to figure out the rest, he prays first. Point number two, we're moving right through them. Here it is on the screen. Get support. Now that Nehemiah had prayed, he'd asked God for success, he goes and he gets some support from somebody that cares about him, doesn't necessarily care about the project, but he cares about him as a person. He goes to the king. Chapter 2, verse 7. Nehemiah 2, verse 7. Here's what happens. Nehemiah says to the king, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. He got support. He got somebody that could back him, somebody that could help him. He built relationships. He talked with people that cared about him. He asked for help from people that, that loved him, even if they didn't care about his burden. And what, with whatever breaks your heart, with whatever burden you're carrying, with whatever dream you have, with whatever burden God's put on your heart, get some support. Talk to your family. Talk to your friends. Talk to key leaders. Scour the internet. Maybe somebody else has the same broken heart that you do. Make connections. Recruit. Inspire. God will direct you to people that can help you as well. Get some support. Point number three. We're cruising through these. Here it is on the screen. Don't blame Isn't the blame game easy? Which makes you feel better in life if you can blame somebody else for your problem. We all do that. Did somebody say amen? I think I heard that. (laughs) If Nehemiah could be in his situation and not blame, then you can too, because he had every excuse in the world. Look at this wall. I can't build this. I don't have training in this. I don't have my master's degree in this. I don't have a doctorate in this. I don't know anybody that knows this stuff. He could have any excuse. He could say, well, this really isn't my problem. Let's uh, somebody else deal with it. He could have said, well, this is too big of a job. I can't handle it. He might have said, well, there's not enough people that can help me. But instead he said, let's go build this thing. Let's rebuild it. And it's at that very moment where he's courageously moving forward that these schmoes show up in the Bible here named uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Maybe you've heard of these guys. Not my pals. Nehemiah 2, 19, here's what happens. Verse 19, 
when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about what Nehemiah was doing, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? In chapter 4, uh, Tobiah, he shows up and he says, hey, look at these walls. If a fox jumped on this wall, the wall would crumble. You guys are ridiculous. And Nehemiah, with all opportunity to just blame somebody else and say, not my problem, he moves forward. In fact, it gets worse because as Nehemiah's building, there's threats of attack. People say, we're going to come and destroy what you're doing. And so instead of retreating, he forms groups. And he says, okay, you guys work while you guys stand guard. And, and if we get attacked, we'll all have swords and we'll gather in the right place and we'll defend ourselves. He said, this project is moving forward no matter what because God broke my heart for it. And he's going to do something about it. Even with all this opposition, Nehemiah doesn't blame. And I'll tell you what, to be honest, it's easy to blame when God puts a burden on your heart. It's too big of a job. There's too much opposition. There's not enough money. I don't have enough time. But it's what you do with all that negativity that makes the difference between becoming a change maker and a quitter. Don't blame. In fact, I would put it this way. We'll put it on the screen for you. Blame is the most effective change avoidance strategy on the planet. If somebody else is at fault, then you don't have to do anything about it. The bottom line is that blaming doesn't create change. Change makers do whatever it takes and they do something. Here's the last point, point number four. Nehemiah divided and conquered. He didn't work by himself, he split it up. In fact, uh, you can uh, read with me in Nehemiah 3 verse one. Let's see how your pronunciation is this morning. I've been practicing this. See how bad mine is. Nehemiah 3.1, it says this. Here's how Nehemiah split it up. He said, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. Verse 2. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. Verse 3. The first, the fish gate, was rebuilt by the sons of Hasanaah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. We could go on with my impressive pronunciation, but that's good. That's all I practiced. We have to stop there. I know you won't be able to read it, but this is what Jerusalem looked like if you split it up just the way Nehemiah did. All those colors represent different sections with different people working on different areas of the same project. As, as the pastor sat around this week, dreaming about this church, looking at 4,000 peoples and ministries galore and Sabbath school classes and all the different pieces of ministry that make Forest Lake the greatest church on the planet. We also looked at all the silos and sections of it and we thought, man, how can we accomplish the same cause, the same purpose together rather than all the different sections working for themselves? And Nehemiah says, let's all work on the same project together. All one purpose, one cause, one broken heart for mission, and we'll put them all together. Everybody does their own work for that one purpose and that one cause. And you, as a change maker, with whatever breaks your heart, even if it's an insurmountable task, if you divide it and conquer it like Nehemiah, you will have success too. So how do you figure out the how? That's the question we're asking today. 
And I believe the easiest way to understand it is with a Venn diagram. You guys like Venn diagrams? What's funny is that all those voices are like 12 and under. I didn't learn what a Venn diagram was until I was an adult. This morning at about 6.15, I'm, pra- I'm practicing my sermon, working on it in the, in the kitchen there. And uh, my son, my oldest son, Caffrey, he comes, he comes strolling out. Just wake- he likes to wake up early just like me. And he comes rolling out there and he's listening to me. And I, I say, oh yeah, Venn diagram. And he says, hey, I like Venn diagrams. That's good. That means Fleece's education is excellent. I'm glad you teachers are doing a good job. A Venn diagram looks kind of like this. Here it is on the screen. Multiple circles that connect together, and at the center point where they all are together, you have something special. And if this is the Venn diagram of your calling and of your life, that center point would be your kazon, which if you missed the first Sabbath, you wouldn't know what it is. That's the Hebrew word for vision, the God-given vision that he's given to your life. And what makes up that kazon are these three parts. Here's the first one, your past experiences. That's the the pieces of your life that created you to be who you are now. That's when you were a kid and you you, uh, hit a home run on on your t-ball team. That's uh, that's when you were in high school and you were the captain of your basketball team. Uh, That's the sad experiences, like what happened earlier when you had loss or you had pain. It's all the pieces of your past experience that make you who you are today. That, connected with this one, your core values, oh, that's the pieces that you're passionate about, the things that matter the most to you. And I would say what God breaks your heart is in this category. Your past experiences, your core values, and then the last one is this, it's your spiritual gifts. What God's already given you, how he's equipped you to do something powerful. Before you were ever born, he gave it to you. I have a friend, his name is Tim. He's an older guy and he's a master carpenter. He can make anything, and, and while I would use two-by-fours, he would make it look like it's fine furniture. He's unbelievable with what he makes, and, and not too long ago, I went to his house, went in the front door, down to the basement where he has his shop, and he's got table saws and dust collectors and, and all, all kinds of wood uh, instruments to make fine craftsman carpentry, and uh, he was working on a project, and so I'm helping him build it. I got glue all over my hands, and his phone rings. And he picks up his phone, and he has this conversation, and I only can hear his side of the conversation. And when he hangs up, he says, well, that's the people that want my blood again. I thought, what, what, what kind of vampire friends do you have, buddy? And he says, no, no, it's the, it's the, the people that want my blood. And he says, well, Matt, I've got universal donor blood, O negative. If you disagree with me that it's O positive, I will hate you because in first service I said O negative like it was and somebody was like, it's O positive. So I changed it now it was all embarrassing. It's O negative. I Googled it, trust me. (laughs) Tim says he's got O negative blood. It's a universal donor. Everybody wants his blood. And he said, but there's something special about my O negative universal donor blood, Matt. He said 99%, and I'm not medical, so you can correct me later. 99% of people with this blood have some sort of a virus in their blood. And he said, I'm the 1% that doesn't have this virus, which means my blood is as pure and universal doning as it can be. And he said, they use my blood for infants. He said, one pint of my blood is good for three infants, babies that are really struggling. He says, that's why they want my blood. And every 52 days they call me because they want this blood. And I'm thinking, Tim, God put that in you before you could even walk. 
He empowered you and equipped you and gave you something inside of you before you could even talk. It's inside you to save lives, to be a change maker that you had nothing to do with. And from before you were even born, he knew how he would use you. And as I think about this Venn diagram with past experiences and core values and spiritual gifts, it makes me wonder, what are the three that make you up? Those past experiences that have created you to be the person that you are. And those core values, the most important things in your life, what breaks your heart. And those spiritual gifts that God's given you to use for his glory. How has he created you to become a change maker? As a little kid in elementary school, my favorite day was the day we'd, of the week where we'd go to the library. My school was up in Greenville, Tennessee, and we had a long hallway and classrooms all down the side, and the library was at the very end, and you'd walk in and it'd have that familiar musty library smell. You can smell it now, can't you? And we'd go in there and pick the books, any book you want. My teacher just loved us to read, and, and we'd go in there and we, oh, I had some good books that I read. My favorites were the great illustrated classics. You know those? You know, the one, like Moby Dick, uh, Around the World in 80 Days, Journey to the Center of the Earth. And those specific books are the best because they have a picture on every other page, right? Do you know the ones? I love those. Or, or the legendary books like the Berenstein Bear books. Those are classics. But my teacher always encouraged us to read biographies, real stories of real people, of things that really happened. And I read so many biographies. And it's funny because oftentimes when you read a biography, you're reading the story of a hero, of a change maker, someone that did something amazing in their life. And of all the biographies that I read, one of my favorites was the story of this guy right here. We'll put him on the screen for you. Jackie Robinson. I don't know if you know his story. You probably do. Maybe you watched the movie that came out not too long ago, 42, his number. What an incredible man who, from the very beginning, was called to be a change maker. Not only did God give him natural talents and abilities, but he gave him a heart that saw a need to change. And he changed the face of baseball. Up until 1947, baseball was a white sport. White players, white fans, and you could just see racism at its best just going to a baseball game and looking at the color of the player's skin. But Jackie saw the need for change. And in 1944, before he was even close to being a Dodgers player, he started to put his change-making action in, into play, and uh, he refused to sit in the back of the bus where there was a, an area just for non-white people. In 1946, Jackie is, is recruited by a guy named uh, Branch Rickey, kind of a funny name. Branch Rickey is the scout, and he goes and he talks to Jackie. And he says, Jackie, I want you on my team but you've got to be able to turn the other cheek. Jackie says, wait, 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 wait. Are you saying that you want someone who isn't afraid to fight back? Ricky says, no, I'm looking for someone that has the guts not to fight back. So Jackie, he joins the Brooklyn Dodgers in the very first year. He's the rookie of the year. The whole world watches what's happening as he is a player and as he's a change maker, and he has incredible opposition. I mean, in his 10-year career, he had hate mail, threats, uh, physical attacks by his teammates and by others, but because he surrounded himself with good people, because he had God-given vision out in front of him, he put racism and the race barrier behind him. 
and he changed the world. This morning, I don't know what it is that God's put on your heart to change. I don't know the gifts that he's given you or the values that he's given you or the experiences that you have, but I do know that he's called you to be a change maker. And while that feels like an insurmountable task for many of you, I want to leave you with these words, key words from Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20. As Nehemiah says to you and me this morning, he says, the God of heaven will give us success. And I believe that whatever passion and burden he's placed on your heart, that he will give you success too as you bring change. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, God, you challenge us like no other. You call us like no other. And we praise you, God, that you've allowed us to be on your mission to change the world for your glory. God, be with us. Help us. Show us the how. God, we love you, and we can't wait to see you. In Jesus' name, amen.